Hello, and welcome to the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival podcast. VanCAF is dedicated to celebrating comics creators and comics in all of its forms. Our festival takes place on the stolen, ancestral, and traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil nations. We are grateful to live and create here. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you'd like to learn more, head to vancaf.com. All right, you're listening to the Vancouver Comic Art Festival podcast. I'm your host for this week, Robin McConnell. I'm the executive director of the festival, and uh, I am very pleased to be joined this week by Andrew Iden. Uh, Andrew is one of uh, a slew of amazing folks involved in the March and now run series of books chronicling the life and work of the great congressman John Lewis. Um, joined in that in the March series by uh, old friend Nate Powell, as well with run uh, by El Fury and a little bit of Nate at the beginning of the book. Uh, and I think that's Nate on the cover, right? Uh, it's Nate and Fury working together on the cover. Love it. Nice. The passage of time. Right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. Thank you for joining me today, Andrew. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. Um, now... I have talked to Nate before. We were chatting a little before this, and um, it, it's been really interesting to see as these books came out through the last, uh, what was the first one, like 2017, 2016? The first March book uh, came out in August of 2013. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Kind of, my, my brain doesn't work great sometimes. The, oh, no. Yeah. It's been at it a long time. It just always feels so new, right? It just seems like it's perpetually relevant for better or for worse. Yeah, exactly. Like it's all the, the, the topics are increasingly fresh, I would say. Yeah. It's, it's been both gratifying and sad to see uh, how this, the series, the Congressman's life, the lessons of the movement, um, the 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 conflict that the young people have faced in in that era and now in this era just continue to drive a necessary conversation about these topics and I'm just glad we started it when we did um, so that we could be a facilitator for that. Now I want to talk about kind of kind of what led you to the point of the books. Um, you were, uh, working with Congressman, you were in his office, um, but kind of what got to that point is I'm really curious about your own kind of trajectory of getting involved in politics. Uh, a bit about myself is I actually was considering a major in political science, uh, for my own upper education and, um, the university I went to did not have a very good poli side department. And so I veered into history, um, so I've always had a really big interest in, in kind of knowledgeably active in that way. Um, but kind of that drive of that sense of purpose of that's where you wanted to go. So I'm curious about kind of what led you into that and kind of what were some of those steps in your lives? Well, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think if, if it starts anywhere, <clears throat> it starts with my mother. Um, I was... Uh, my father was a Turkish Muslim immigrant my, who left when I was very young, and I was raised by my mom. 
And this was the South in the 80s. And I remember growing up watching her just be mistreated over and over again. Um, This attitude of how could you be raising a child on your own? Where's your father? Or excuse me, where's your husband? You know, why doesn't the boy have a father? Like all these sort of questions. I can remember her uh, struggling just to get like a bank loan or anything like that. I mean, single women at the time in the South were um, almost treated like Mm non-persons. And that just had a huge impact on how I saw the world. Um, I can remember saying to my mother, like, well, when I grow up, I'm going to be a different kind of man. I'm not going to be like that. And I think a lot of men in my generation who grew up with single mothers went through that same experience. I think that's why you see so many uh, presidents and congressmen who are the children of single single moms, um, Mm -hmm. particularly Democrats. Um, and so that sort of sense of righteous indignation that I did not want to be a part of that system. I wanted to change it, that I felt like I could make a contribution. And also just the sense that I had power, which my mother instilled in me, um, the ability to agitate, the ability to, um, force change in some ways. And so that's, that's what got me into it. I mean, I remember, like, and, and that's very much also the same story about why I was into comic books. Because I, I was so angry that my father had left. And I, I felt like, what did I do wrong? And so I gravitated to comics because it was this place where I could read about people trying to do the right thing because it was the right thing to do. And it, it was my grandmother who introduced me. First, she let me read my um, uncle's old comics from the 60s, which I think we would all cringe at the idea of giving to a eight-year-old or nine-year-old to flip through today. <laughs> um, like, I can remember one of the first comics I ever read was an actual first printing of Uncanny X-Men number one. Um, and that was my first introduction to the X-Men. Like, what? Um, so so now even the comic collector part of me goes back and cringes at that. And um, then she took me to... I remember we went to a Piggly Wiggly, uh, which is a grocery store in Western North Carolina. And they had a spinner rack of comics. My grandmother said, would you like one? And I went and I picked it up and it was Uncanny X-Men 317, the lenticular cover. Oh, yeah. Phalanx, Covenant, all that. Um, I think that was what, Scott Lobdell and maybe Joe Madeira? I'd have to to go back. I think Um, you're right. Yeah. I think so. Maybe sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I forget completely. Um, And so I kind of fell in love. I mean, then I started reading um, Mark Wade and Mike Waringo's run on the flash. Um, Ron Mars's run on green lantern. And those are sort of my early entry points. And what, what really resonated with me was just that these were people who were struggling to live their lives and be extraordinary and be helpful. Um, and that very much dovetailed with my sense of what the role of a good public servant should be as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, those two ethoses, my mother's experience and her beliefs, and also what I got from the comics that I was reading 
um, really kind of pushed me into politics. It seemed like I had no other choice. I mean, I think there was a brief period when I was young that I wanted to be an architect because I love to build things. Um, I like projects. I like to um, create. And I, I, I remember going to Dragon Con for the first time, which is a convention in Atlanta. And seeing all these creators with their tables and their ideas put out there on pieces of paper and thinking how amazing it was that they could make a living and purely based on the power of their ideas. And that seemed like real freedom to me at the time. But I remember when I was in college and I started to look at like, what would I do for a living? How would I earn money? Because, you know, you graduated from college, you got a lot of student loan debt. Mama wasn't, mama ended up on my payroll long, <laughs> uh, long before <laughs> that. Um, you know, I mean, I was helping pay the household bills when I was in high school. So there was no money uh, for that. And I was like, I needed to also get a job. And so politics, particularly government, seemed like a much more possible route for me. And I went to school in Connecticut. I went to a small college called Trinity College on a full scholarship. Um, the nerd kind, not the sports kind. And I remember in, I started interning uh, because you could get paid for your summer internships. And so I would beg and plead and somehow worked my way onto the hill. And um, I remember coming up out of the metro at Capitol South. And you come up this long escalator and you come up and you see this hint of the marble buildings and it's cannon in front of you. And you can sort of just see a part of the Capitol, but not really. And then you walk down, I think it's C Street for one block so that you can get to the public entrance. And you look up to your right and there was the Capitol. And I remember seeing that for the first time from that perspective and thinking, this is where I want to be. This is where I can do some good. And um, that's really what got me started down this road. Is it, so you didn't really kind of have any like adolescent community activism type stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, I held sit-ins. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a little more there. There's... Yeah, no, I mean, I was definitely the rabble rouser. Like, don't get me wrong. I think, but there's a difference between being the rabble rouser and the activist and thinking you can work in government. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I remember in college, we held sit-ins just to hold the library open because the poor kids who didn't live in off-campus housing, we were really tired of listening to the drunk kids on the weekends when we were trying to get good grades. Uh, not that I didn't get that good of grades, but it was like I was trying, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we... we they wouldn't hold the library open after 11 o'clock. And we were like, we need refuge from the drunk kids. And so we held a sit-in and forced them to keep them open. And we ended up getting it permanently done uh, during exams and other high traffic periods. Like late into the morning? Yeah, I think it was like three or four in the morning. Because we just weren't going to leave. Like, what are you going to, like, come arrest us. Like, we're sitting in a library. (laughs) Like... (laughs) You know, <laughs> come on, like, come and get me. I triple dog dare you. And I mean, but that's that was the thing that I think drew me to John Lewis was understanding that that power and that ability to to be the underdog and how you can use that power 
to force change. Because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't mean you can just go in there and make demands. You have to creatively dramatize the conflict and do that in such a way that it works towards strategic ends. Well, one of the things actually that's kind of doves into run is it it really seems like a process point for for Congressman Lewis of like what are the the means that that get you the ends and how do you reconcile what feels right and kind of sticking to that and I found that really fascinating. Um, you know, we 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 have a uh, I don't want to say ethical. But there's like there's there seems like there's 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 something really specific in, in, in what he's trying to say with the book. I think moral would yeah. be right. Yeah. You know, there, there's there's two schools of thought that I think came out of that period of time that we try and show and run. There is the one school of thought that saw nonviolent civil disobedience as a tool or a tactic. And then there was the other school of thought that John Lewis was a ardent supporter of, which is that. Nonviolence is not simply a tool or a tactic, but it's a way of life. It's a way of living, as he would say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, he lived that in his own life. He liked the drama. He liked uh, stirring it up. Um, but at the end of the day, it was always about finding a way to dramatize the conflict, not in any way attacking or hurting someone to win. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big difference that a lot of people even today in on the Hill and in politics don't understand. And that meant that John Lewis ended up taking a lot of blows that weren't just the police batons on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I mean, these were body blows that you think of in a, uh, that, that you feel in a physical way, but, but, but they were emotional and, and they were from his peers and his colleagues in some instances. And he was willing to take them because he believed so deeply that nonviolence was more than a tool and a tactic, that it was a way of life. And when we put those lessons in run, I believe John Lewis was really trying to show, in, in wanting to tell these stories, he was really trying to show the arc of an idea, the arc of a philosophy, mm-hmm. how um, movements shift and what the results and consequences of those shifts are, how an idea that could seem revolutionary 10 years prior, when you see it in Montgomery during the bus boycotts, becomes old hand when the next generation of activists come behind and start to take up leadership roles in SNCC. And that conflict we're going to see over and over and over again, not just in March or run, but in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, especially from the perspective where John Lewis was in when we first started this in 2016, he was 76 years old. He's looking back. He's trying to show um, the elected leaders, but also just the future leaders, how that conflict helped and how that conflict hurt. And what they can do better, how yep. they can improve, how they can um, learn from his mistakes and learn from his successes. I think there's something within like how because we know we never work in a bubble. We're always affected by the 
the, the things that are around us and things that are actually happening. And with the first work coming out with the context of the Obama administration, um, and, and kind of you have this like sense of optimism and hope and change, um, and then the uh, incredible step back with the Trump years and kind of how that kind of affects the work you're trying to do and the change to that work. Um, and I'm always kind of cautious about like bringing Trump into conversations because it, it definitely changes the dynamic. But I think like within the context of creating run is definitely there's an impact there in the in the really harsh right turn. Well, well, I think if we're going to mention Trump, we have to mention that he came into office after, on the day that he came into office. His mailroom was filled with thousands of copies of March <laughs> gifted to him by a country not thrilled with his presence in the White House and responding to his inane remarks about John Lewis. <laughs> and I think there's a lot more that can be said about that era and, and the ups and the downs and everything like that, but it puts such a fine point on it yeah. that when, when you came after John Lewis, America threw comic books at you. Yeah. And, and that's beautiful to me, but I'm sorry. <laughs> and I just, I just, yeah. you know, that's like one of those things where yeah. it's like, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean where it's like, yeah, the, the March series was, uh, born at a time of hope and optimism yeah and run was born at a time of fear and preparation for a dark winter yeah and that's very much what we were trying to do that's it's funny because you know jason Furman, who was a the chair i believe of the white house council of economic advisors um posted his review on goodreads he's like i love the book man i'm just sorry it's not it doesn't have more obama in it this time and <laughs> It's like, it's like I I get it, but the hope that he represented, while it materialized in some ways, in others it set up a fall that I think could have been prevented, and and there's a number of ways. Not not as if it's just the fault of President Obama or the administration, but. I mean, think about it. Every step of the way after we elected Barack Obama, we, we let him down. Yeah. Right. 2010, you have the summer of the Tea Party protests and we lose the House. Right. We made a critical error in 2009. The House pushed and spent an enormous political capital to pass a cap and trade legislation, which is a carbon offset uh, legislation that went nowhere in the Senate. When we had unanimous agreement just about that we could have reauthorized the Voting Rights Act, we could have put stronger um, protections in place. But we just assumed after this huge landslide victory that America had moved on and we didn't do the necessary work of fulfilling um, essentially John Lewis's life's work of enshrining the right to vote as guaranteed for every American come hell or high water. And... We missed that chance. Then as Democrats, as Americans, we, we lost the House and then we gave birth to this bizarre yet all too familiar um, anger machine Yeah, that really in many ways destroyed the comedy of Congress 
and made it almost impossible for them to do anything of substance, which honestly I think was the design. Now, I know we're here to talk about comic books, so I apologize <laughs> for um, But I really believe that was by design. I think they, there is the attitude that a, a Congress that can't get anything done is a good Congress because that means they can't regulate. That means they can't tax. Um, let it rot, and the rich yeah. will get richer. And... I don't know, man. This has been a crazy time. Yeah, been I mean, it's that. Comics. Yeah, I mean, we, we technically we are a comic festival, but I don't think all conversations need to revolve around comics. Comics was exist within a context of the world we're living in, and so it's like, even as we talk about comics, the the economy of comics is threatened now just by the whole uh, scale of worldwide supply chain shortages. I have. Uh, one of my favorite books this year was caught in the Suez Canal. Oh, oh no. <laughs> you know, and so it's you're like, you're watching that boat. You're like, get it out. <laughs> you know? And so that, that contextualizes, that's one of the small things, but even like, as we're looking at like paper shortages and all this stuff is caught up in this, this, um, fervent, um, reactionary political willpower in the in in the in the extreme right of of shutting things down not in the shutdown of the covid lockdown but shut down in terms of um stopping growth from happening of creating stagnant barriers of um you know as you say within the context of the rich get richer um it's it 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 stops other folks from growing and community growing and um, I always remember when I was doing uh, international relations stuff in college and talking about like the, the concepts of how micro grants work in like these small rural locations to develop growth within that and it, so it's like you lose these small opportunities to create localized change and it blossoms out. I think I went on a long tangent there. I'm no, sorry. I, I mean I think you're right <laughs> anyways. I mean I think you know, I think we forget. Well, first of all, you know, you hear a lot of the folks who are like, "Get my, get your politics out of my comics," and you're like, "Dude, have you not been reading comics?" And 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 more to the point, like, do you not understand the history of comics? Because the modern superhero environment that we still so lovingly cherish, right? The 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 launch of the Fantastic Four, Spider Man, or um, you know, bringing back Captain America, or um, the new Green Lantern and the Flash relaunch. I mean, isn't it showcase number four that is considered the birth of the Silver Age, right? Those all came back and happened because of a senator from Illinois, um, uh, Estes Kefauver, um, who held hearings. And, and, it was, and it was, and this is, this actually ties into March in a weird way. Held these hearings in the Judiciary Committee, right? And it's the comic book hearings. They, they, they hit them in New York, so they'd get all this media attention. And, you know, it drives comic book publishers out of business because of all the sex and romance and monsters and horror and everything, right? And so then they have to turn to superheroes and the comics code and everything that influenced all the stuff that came out when we were kids, right? Um, the the modern superhero, the, the whole audience of comics is is derived from that that series of events and then to look at it in the context of march march is actually in many ways one of the things that helped bring that dirty circle to a close because you had senator Leahy, uh patrick Leahy of vermont senator patrick Leahy, uh, at a judiciary committee hearing in um, july of 2013 on the reauthorization of the voting rights act 
um, the same overarching committee that held the comic book hearings in the mid 50s. He holds up a copy of March at the beginning of it. And he says, you know, all my grandkids are going to read this. I love this. Thank you, John Lewis. And then they proceed on. You know, he got the shocked face of the aide behind him. Like, did he just really hold up a comic book at a judiciary hearing? Like, mm-hmm. you know, and it was full circle, this moment um, that I remember. I was actually at San Diego uh, Comic-Con in a hotel room waiting for the convention to start because this was the first time we were bringing John Lewis to Comic-Con. And nobody knew how it would be received or if I would even have a job after <laughs> um, and and then you saw that happen you saw Leahy embrace it and it was just it was just this huge moment for us we little segment of the world that are both comic and government nerds mm-hmm and I mean the the thing about comics is within the book industry landscape they're the only growth market Oh, yeah. And like by double digits, right? It's like everything else is shrinking like 3% and comics are growing like 12, 15, 19%. You know, it's 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 like get on board or get out of the way. I mean, this is the future. <laughs> I mean, I will kind of push back a little bit on the uh, Judiciary Committee in terms of the 1950 stuff because it also kind of quashed a lot of growth in terms of um, the EC line because there was some really interesting stuff happening that got shut down pretty hard. Oh, it was it was. It stopped. I mean, the so so just to really go nerd on this, I, I, I uh, it was actually the, the the committee report from that those hearings that helped me figure out who actually published Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story, mm. um, because it was a guy named Elliot Kaplan who was running a company at the time called Toby Press. Um, and it's, it's Al Cap's brother. Right. Oh, funny. He, yeah. And he was publishing these comics. They were like, you know, a little romance, like a little night going around the countryside and killing people. Like just, you know, some cool but basic um, adventures here and there for kids, right? Or young adults at this point is what we would call them. And he got attacked. He was part of the... the uh, now, it's a little while since I wrote this thesis. So if I get fuzzy, I apologize. But <laughs> the gist of it is that he gets driven out of business because he gets attacked because some of his comics have sex in it. And he's labeled undesirable. His company's labeled undesirable. So he shuts down his company and he reopens it as something called Graphic Information Services. Same editor, same company, same mailing address. This is how I figured it out. Because the mailing address that he listed in the committee hearing uh, for the company Toby Press was the same uh, mailing address for the company that Dr. King was corresponding with, with his edits to the comic book script for Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story then that's how you figure out and you go backtrack into the comics to find Toby press and all this sort of stuff. So in a sense too, I mean like, like EC and what they were doing was, was, was revolutionary at the time. William Gaines probably, uh, I think a lesson we can, yeah, we can all learn that lesson, right? Like just don't shoot your mouth off in front of Congress. Cause like for as obnoxious as you may think a member of Congress can be, wait till they have a vendetta. Um, and, and so, um, it's interesting to me that those hearings drove that company out of business in the regular comics market, but then they revived themselves and then go on to create this comic that had way more influence than yeah, yeah. anything else they'd ever produced and is still in print today. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm doing an event with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is still around and like still using the comic book. Um, and, and it's incredible to me how sometimes the, the laws of unintended consequences can sometimes bring about an even greater change than what you ever thought possible. So 
your master's this is your master's thesis that yeah, was on yeah. this and so yeah. that was specifically on the on that comic and kind of the context around it or was there like an argument with it uh, i was trying to write the first history i was trying to prove that it had actually inspired uh played a role in the in the civil rights movement um and first i don't know what i was thinking i was going to georgetown at night <laughs> uh while i was working on the hill and while i was writing march um so if I seem a little older than I am, maybe you know why. Um, it's it was it was really important to me when we were doing March to figure out how they used Martin Luther King in the Montgomery story, because at the time you were just sort of getting these little snippets, right? You heard of a woman named Dahlia Zieta who was using the translations of the comic Martin Luther King in the Montgomery story in Tahrir Square during the Arab Spring, and. You know, you'd hear other stories. They kept saying it was Al Cap who'd made it. And it was just sort of filtering around the Internet. But to me, because we were using March as our – we're using Martin Luther King and a Montgomery story as our guide for March, um, it was sort of this this fascination, this keystone for us. Um, I felt like I had a responsibility to figure out what actually happened mm-hmm. and, like, how it was done. And so I was – doing this master's at night because you know you're a poor kid you made it on scholarship that far you know you got to be more educated and sharper than everybody else because the rich kid's daddy's going to make the call um and so i went started doing this grab program and then you had to write the thesis and they're like what do you want to write about i was like actually i want to write about a comic book and like i wish you could have seen the reaction in this room (laughs) of georgetown professors when they're like they're like trying to be nice about it because like they got respect for me like at that point i'd earned a little cred i was um, gaining some uh, respect on the hill and things like that. And so they were like, oh, well, why don't you see if you can find something? But let's not say this idea is put to bed yet. Oh, okay. You know, and um, and then when I found the letter showing that Dr. King had actually helped edit the comic, that was when everything changed um, because you had this pedigree now. Mm-hmm. It was uh, that in his archives. It was actually, this is so funny. I was surprised no one had ever found it before because it was just digitized in like one of those unsorted batches on Stanford's website. <laughs> and, like, and nobody knew what he was talking about in the letter. They're like, why is he talking about the script? Like what? And so I was like, oh my God, I know what this means, you know? And I put it together with some other letters that um, Sylvia Rohr, a professor that at Carlo University, who now I believe is at Pitt, had found in an archive of an organization called Fund for the Republic, um, which was a Ford Foundation-funded organization that was trying to fund essentially arts activities and, and other activities in the South um, uh, around civil rights. And um, no one it – was, it was sort of like this – like there should be a documentary about like how we figured this out someday because it was like this weird game of – like a puzzle where you didn't know how many pieces there were, but you sort of knew the shape. So you were trying to fill in the details as you went. And then we found an archive at Princeton. And that was what unlocked a lot of the questions because they had things from the business side, right? So it was like, the foundations, what they wanted out of it, how they were writing about it. And then they had letters from this guy, Benton Resnick, who was helping and had worked for Toby Press before it reinvented himself. And 
somehow in there, then I guess I swear the congressman called and was like, be nice to this kid. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Jim Lawson, who used the comic in 1958, um, was, was sat down for an interview with me. And then just as like a series of like fortuitous, like older men helping me, um, then Eddie Campbell decides to get involved. And Eddie, you know, I got to know Eddie at the table at San Diego tabling for the, the, <laughs> we had an ash can for March that came out in 2012. I mean, it's like this like 12 page black and white, like mini comic, like straight oh. out of SPX. Right. And I was so proud of that thing. I think their publisher printed it up just to keep me quiet. He made like 300 of them. He's like, yeah, just give these out. I'm like, dude, this comic's going to be so big. I was like going around a comic. Look, I have a mini comic. Nobody cared. Um, I can't imagine what one of those would sell for on eBay these days. Um, (laughs) But, you know, and so anyway, it just all snowballed. And like everybody kept helping me. So then Eddie actually is the one. Eddie and this guy, James Vandecourt, who runs – the Digital Comics Museum, they're the ones who actually sort of figured out that it was likely one of the um, Barry brothers who was the artist. And there's just, you know, all, all these sort of things kind of snowballing and people just being generous and willing to help and not demanding credit and just being like, oh, let's let the little kid go. And then that thesis ended up becoming our guide for how we launched March. So the first thing we did was we took that that thesis made it into a feature article it ran in a weekly newspaper in atlanta that the congressman and i guest edited and nate did the cover of called the future of Nonviolence." um it was nonviolence. the 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 way you're supposed to do it and the philosophy of nonviolence is that you should declare your intentions before you act so that people know the result that you are searching for Mm -hmm. and so that's what we did we said we're trying to change the world with these comics this is why and in that, Lawson and others had shown us how they used the comic and what they called a reconciliation tour um, to go throughout the South to libraries and schools and, and wherever they could get space because it was dangerous at the time, right? Um, and they gave these talks. And it was like a revival in some sense. And then they gave them the comic book to take with them. So then when March came out, that's what we would do. Somebody always wanted John Lewis to speak. And we would say, well, okay. But make sure that the kid and they would want to pay him. Right. And he couldn't take honorarium. So we would say, make sure that the kids get comics and we will come speak to them. Mm-hmm. And so that's 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 how it started. I mean, we started doing those for we easily did 200 of those in the last eight, nine years of his life. Wow. Um, and that well, that's a whole nother story. But but that, the Martin Luther King comic was the was the inspiration it was our guide it was how like that that history of it understanding how they use that to affect change became our guide for how we would use march to do the same thing maybe on a little bit bigger scale or maybe not you know and with run um getting us where we're at today um kind of you're working with a, a much bigger publisher uh, with Abrams, one of the big New York publishers and and I'm interested how that approach changes in terms of like the depth of access you get in terms of communities as well when you're working with a big publisher like that they'll have more kind of reach into communities and stuff well that was what was interesting to us is it um what we were really searching for was distribution um our audience was not really in the comic shops 
yeah. um, our ratio of comic sales to like shop sales to, to bookstore sales and library channel was something like 500 to one. Yeah. Um, it was pretty lopsided. And so that was an easy decision to make about where we wanted to be. And also like we went with them cause like <laughs> we never got offered another contract. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it. We won the national book award, like, look into whatever you want about like the company and the ideas behind it and why they wouldn't. But we never got offered a contract and we offered, we asked. Um, and, and then the other thing that we did that I think was personally for me, just much more healthy um, is that the Congressman encouraged me to build my own team. And Nate was, you know, he was ready to do his own books and he had all these backed up books because March was supposed to be one book, not three books. Um, and the third one being quite large. Yeah, that's my fault, too. Um, <laughs> and, and and so we were trying to figure out how to do it. And so I created this company with uh, Kelly Sudeconic and Matt Fraction um, and Val Delandro and a uh, close friend my whole life, Vaughn Chanel. Um and we tried to build sort of a safe space for nonfiction comic making mm -hmm. um, and something that, you know, both Nate and I ended up in the hospital at different points while we were making March. People forget how far we pushed ourselves to do that in the time that we did it. And, and so building, putting, having these people around me, um, a diverse team, you know, black and white, LGBTQ, um, and then of course Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue are legendary too for just being fun. Um, it was just a healthier space for all of us, and so I was grateful for Abrams to allowing us to exist underneath uh, their apparatus. Um, and you know we were we had to find a new home, and so I, I'm I'm grateful we did. I'm a little like curious what you mean by safe space because i'll be blunt um nonfiction comics pretty strong entity in the literary comics market um, ah but not in a know. regular comics market <laughs> <laughs> you know like if you're publishing um teenage angst comics or like my latest romance graphic novel or things like that a lot of the nonfiction stuff just doesn't make sense to you um and the time it takes to do the work. Um, and then you do it all, and then the print runs so small that it sells out in a day, and you're still doing publicity for it and working your tail off, and there's no copies to sell. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a different scale. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we've sold just about as many books as we sold for any of the other March books now, but, like, we got a deep well. Now it's in Costco. It's in Target. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's yeah. In Barnes and Noble, right up front. It's a totally different game. Um, you know, it's not like there aren't some days where I miss the sort of indie spirit. And, uh, you know, we were, it was so scrappy. I mean, because really, like, what it came down to with March was, it was me, uh, Nate, and Lee Walton. And that was, yeah. like, the whole team. I mean, Lee was editing and doing PR, and I was helping him with the PR from the political communications perspective so i'm like feeding him names and giving him strategy and he's executing and nate's drawing his heart out and then i'm trying to keep up with script and then lee's editing that and, and like three people to do that entirely by themselves it's too much 
you yeah. know, and and Chris Ross, Chris Ross, our designer, who who was a fantastic presence on that as well. Um, but you know, what we were able to do if you look at the end notes and you look at the back matter. I mean, I had three, four people helping me at different points with the research and and you know, being able to talk to Kelly Sue and Matt and Val and Vaughn, like and and is this something I should worry about? Is this not like, you know, am I doing this right? It's it was. It's just healthier. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have more work in mind to do through this Good Trouble Productions? Oh, yeah, yeah. We did uh, comics for New York City Public Schools. Um, you can. It's called Registered. That's the first one. You can download it off their website. It's free. It's about the history of the 26th Amendment and why 18-year-olds have the ability to register and vote. Um, we did a project for Ben & Jerry's called The Long March where we adapted... Uh, March essentially into a 35 foot by five foot visual installation. Oh, wow. That still to this day is at the entrance to their factory in Waterbury, Vermont. Um, so if you get your chubby hubby cravings, like you can <laughs> and see it. And um, I think that was it too, right? Like we started off thinking we were going to just like, this is so important. We had to, the congressman had blessed us. We needed to finish his story. We needed to work on this. And then we realized we all really enjoyed working together. Lauren Sankovich came on as editor. Um, we, then we did a series of portraits for the New York City public schools. Like, that are like, 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 like gotta be 15 of them. And, you know, we got to work with folks like Klaus Jansen and others. And, and, and they were all for LGBTQ allies and heroes. Um, so we've gotten to be all over the place. Now we're working on a few books on our own um, that we're kind of keeping quiet because you know, <laughs> we, we've got a little bit of a special sauce that I think is important. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think I think you hear this from a lot of creators that you spend these years struggling and toiling and working an absurd amount so that you can have the freedom to work at your own pace on what you want to work about work on. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and I think that's where we're all at. But we're also all at this point where we want to do something that will stand the test of time and will help people. Yeah. And because of this moment that we exist in right now, where comics are first really being accepted into the classroom right now, March is, you know, one of, if not the most widely taught graphic novel in America now. Um, There are so many other stories that deserve this treatment. Mm-hmm. And if we can help shine a light on the people and the events that others have overlooked, then I think we're making a very important contribution, not just to comics, but but to the health of the country. Um, because that's the only way we understand where we're going is if we can understand our past and and how we got here. So it's about kind of finding, creating space to share stories that haven't previously gotten venues. Um, and kind of uplifting unheard voices? In a sense. I think it's about telling the stories of people who deserve to have their story told. Some of it is more high profile, could be very high profile. Some of it is people you've probably never heard of but should have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, the book I'm working on right now, not to say too much, but it's someone that I met through my cousin who was like, you just should meet this amazing woman. And I did. And I was like, just knocked over and changed everything I was doing so that I could help tell her story. And um, 
like, I'm, I'm excited. It'll probably be another couple of years before you'll see it. Because uh, these things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nonfiction graphic novels are not like a factory. No. It's a lot no. of work. No, even working with Abrams, I'm sure you've got to have the book done, what, like a year and a half in advance? Oh, yeah, yeah. Easy. Street I, think, date. I think we, I wrote my last essay for Run in November of last year. So it was like a 10 month turnaround. Which um, is short for them, probably. Yeah, yeah, that was a rush. Um, and and they went above and beyond to make sure that we had enough copies that we could get it out uh, as soon as possible. Um, because I think, okay, to go back to Run, I think the thing we're struggling with right now is that we've seen this success of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement, or the Voting Rights Act's passage and how the Civil Rights Movement got us there. And we tend to write the story off at that point. We say, you know, Selma happened cue the music, look at the sunset, John Lewis with the bandage over his forehead on the uh, Alabama State Capitol steps, um, Dr. King preaching, signing of the Voting Rights Act, boom, done, right? Yeah, credits. And forg- yeah, exactly. And then we forget that it was days later that Watts ignited, that um, the country was forced to face this question that went beyond voting rights, but about equity about financial equity, about uh, I think the line that we have in the book that the congressman said was that, you know, America had to face the the question about whether or not they're willing to share its bounty with people of color. Yeah. Um, It's one thing to be able to go to the restaurant. It's another to be able to afford to eat there. Yeah. And it always seemed to me like that was the third rail. You know, you see Malcolm X talk about the need for a United Poor People's Campaign. Uh, in November or October, November of 1964, in Nairobi, Kenya, he's shot uh, four months later. Dr. King goes to Memphis uh, for the poor people's campaign, shot and killed. Bobby starts talking about how are you going to help poor people and bringing the different um, groups together around ending poverty, shot and killed. This is the big question. It's a question we're still facing today. It's the question that I faced as a child, watching how my mother was treated. She didn't have a seat at the table because she was a woman. It's what drives all of us. Is It's it's the question of the American dream, right? Like, we make this promise that you'll be able to come here and earn a living and work your way up. But that promise only applied to a certain group of people. And it's it's echoing so loudly right now with the American divisiveness where where folks are looking for an answer of, of something to pin poverty on, something to blame it on, um, you know, understanding that, you know, anti-oppressive models and critical race theory isn't about pinning the blame on anyone as much as necessarily understanding the situations that we're in and... Um, it's it's sadly fascinating about how this is all intertwined and how poverty is a thing that that is the barrier towards so much. Um, my day job is in um, nonprofits doing child protection work, and I was in a meeting recently where I just kind of like went on an unfortunate rant about how poverty is the biggest impact on our client populations, um, just because we we are seeing people struggle. And you just there's so much that's not going to be meant as long as poverty is is such an issue. Right. And that's why we had to do this book, because we had to bring that conversation one more step, you know. Yeah. And this is this is not March book one. This is not the triumphant 
emotional gut punch you're looking for at the end that makes you feel good, like we conquered something. This is dealing with these hard questions that we've ignored for far too long. And I think we did everything we could to make it as accurate as possible so that we showed exactly what it was that people were talking about at that time. Because the startling similarities to what's happening today become self-evident. Yep. And that was... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, it's just that was our mission, right? Like that we had that it certainly started to become a uh, the more we worked on this, the more things unfolded. It started to become like we knew we were doing something just as important, if not in some ways more important than March. But not everybody else had realized it yet. And and it's it's only going to be in this darkness, I think, that people accept that we have to put down uh, the things that divide us because really it's about the uber 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 wealthy versus everybody else yeah and yeah. i mean there's no reason for any child to go hungry in the united states there's no reason for someone to not be able to have a roof over their head we are a wealthy nation we can spend hundreds of millions of dollars a day in afghanistan how much are we going to spend to take care of our people Which is crazy when you look at John Lewis's line when he came back from Edmund Pettus Bridge and he accuses LBJ and he says, you know, how can you send troops to Southeast Asia, but you can't send troops to protect people registering to vote in Alabama? I mean, it's the same fundamental questions. Yeah. And, and what happens now we're looking at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, the context around American involvement in war is something we're not even having a big enough conversation about. You know, yeah. we're too quick to pull our gun and we're too slow to build a school. I mean, it's the the colonialism and imperialism that kind of overarchs everything. And just imperialism means a different thing now than it did 100 years ago, but it's still the same thing. Yeah, it's John Lewis just in run asking the question about when are we going to build a peacetime economy? That we've done yeah. so much to build a wartime economy. and that When are we going to take that shift and focus on social well-being and peace instead of war? And I think... That context, we've we just it, 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 it's hard not to feel like the powers that be just want us to skip that over. But it's the same thing that I felt when March came out. They wanted us to skip over teaching kids about nonviolent civil disobedience. Now it's just we've created this activist generation. I mean, the kids who were touched by March, you're going to have within the next 10 years, you'll have tens of millions of students who have read March and understand nonviolence in a way they never have before. Um What's going to happen then if you put run in schools and you start to ask these fundamental questions about war and poverty? How far can we get then? Yeah. I mean, is it the conversation that people are able to have? I don't know. Um, it's uh, it's tough. People don't want to. It's this idea that like people don't like to admit they're poor and, or it's always that like kind of libertarian ideal of like I will be rich one day and just worry about myself yeah you know I was at the gas station because I'm out at my mother's house my mother passed away about four years ago and I've been taking care of her farm and so I'm out in rural America there's you know trailers and poor folks and <clears throat> I was at the gas station the other day and I was getting a hamburger because that was where I get my hamburgers and this this older gentleman was out sitting on the porch um, and I sat out there to wait for my food and I, I said, how you doing, sir? He said, I'm not doing too well. 
And then I don't know what happened, but he told me his whole story. He lost his job. He didn't have a car. He was about to lose his apartment. And one of my first jobs in Congress, in fact, my first job in Congress when I worked for a member from Connecticut was as a caseworker. I would help veterans with their cases to get their veterans benefits and other services. And as he's telling me this story, that that life that I used to live doing that really just flooded right back. And I was like, all right, let's talk. And I walked him through all the different services that were available to him that no one had told him he could have. You know, you can get a subsidized telephone. I know you lost your phone, but here's the place where you got to go to get that phone. Go to the library. It's about a quarter mile down the road, and that's where you can use the Internet for now. Then we need to get you signed up for rental insurance, rental assistance and Medicaid so you can have health insurance. You know, just going all the way down the line. And the guy, when I left, he just he said, thank you. No one ever told me this before. Yeah. And that's it, right? I mean, that's that's. All you got to do is teach people what they've already paid that that what they've already paid for is available to them. Yeah. They paid their taxes. There's a reason they're called entitlements. Yeah. And I just don't understand it. This sense of you know, going to everybody's going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. No. This is why we have communities. This is why we have families. Because when people get down, we lift them up. And all of us are down at some point. That's the point of run, too, to show that John Lewis was down. I mean, we think of this icon that we know. But I think about John Lewis before March. I remember working as his press secretary on that 2008 campaign, and he was down. He'd supported Hillary Clinton instead of Barack Obama, and they came after him. I'd never seen him in a darker place. And he reinvented himself. We used social media to recast him as good trouble, right? That's where the hashtag came from. That's now the ubiquitous phrase. Um, and then you needed the superhero phrase to get the comic book to be to be actualized yeah. in that way. And then all of a sudden, all these kids are reading his story. They're learning about him. And that arc, um, he was down several times in his life. And I think the one that he experienced after Selma is something that we all need to understand because we all like to celebrate what happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but we don't like to remember what happened after. Yeah. Um, we talk about these learning lessons, and I mean, very early in our conversation, we talked about kind of the atmosphere of what Rudd was written under, um, you know, that time without hope, without optimism, with this new real politic um and even now we're you know voting rights are the issue of the day and, and the improbability of how this thing can't be passed and uh it, it it blows my mind watching the dialogue um and, and i'm wondering as you were working on run and as the congressman was working on that was there some foresight in terms of like kind of foreseeing these challenges of knowing these conversations are going to keep happening. Yeah. The congressman would call it the spirit of history. Um, and I think we were very cognizant of the fact that there was a growing substantive challenge to universal suffrage. 
And if you actually, if you look back uh, at the National Book Award reading, the, the event that happens the night before, the finalists all get up and they read excerpts from their book. I had just come off of working for the party down in Georgia, uh, helping coordinate like, outreach and press and things like that uh, for the presidential campaign. And um, in, in those remarks, I talked about how the things that we depicted in book three were happening right in front of me in Georgia in 2016. Mm-hmm. And that if we did not learn these lessons, if we did not act, um, this was not only going to continue, it was going to get worse. And it was going to be the great challenge of our democracy. And the congressman knew it. He saw it. I mean, he was shook after Trump's election. He did not think he was legitimately elected. Um, The idea of foreign interference happening in our election, um, contributing to uh, the justification for many of these voting rights laws. Uh, Or I shouldn't even say voting rights laws. The voter suppression laws. Yeah. Um, And... We knew we had to do something. We knew that the conversation had to continue and that it was scarily, eerily familiar to John Lewis what was happening. Um, It was a smarter, uh, more well-dressed, more media-savvy version of things like the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. And other concerted efforts among conservative business community members to intimidate and suppress the vote. Um, And I think there's also another point in this, which we have lost sight of sometimes, which is that it's an important point that we make and run, which is that um, oftentimes the candidates that John Lewis and his colleagues were forced to choose between in Alabama and elsewhere were just different degrees of segregationists. Yeah. And I think well, the case that he was, we were also trying to make in these, in this book is that we need better people to run. Yeah. That this arc, which if it, I don't know what we're going to do with it, but if it played out the way I wanted it to, it was going to show all the way up to John Lewis's election. And it was to show that you can be the poor boy from Troy you don't have to be the child with millionaire parents and everything else to get elected, but that you had to be persistent and consistent and you had to keep pushing and you had to work for a long time to get there and to show that arc of his life and hopefully inspire not just a better uh, environment for voting, but a better environment for candidates so that we had better people to vote for. So that we weren't still picking from different degrees of segregationists. And it's, you know, it's interesting that that's still, uh, you know, a conversation nowadays is like, who's the, who's the lesser of the evil? Um, in, in Canada, we even have our, you know, we have a multi-party system. Um, and, you know, there's the choices we make up here of, depending on where you are, you, you strategically vote for know either the liberals or the new democrats um in fear of the conservatives getting in and you know overall we don't really love the liberals because it's kind of this status quo party of a kind of central center centrist um maybe 
just speaking from my own political viewpoints uh <laughs> not to speak for anyone else's viewpoints um but i mean it is it, it, it's that that difficulty thing of like yeah we're voting for this we're kind of holding our breath and 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 voting for justin trudeau um sure he's great for what he needs but when it comes down to it when we're talking again about how poverty underpins things and i was trying to explain to someone they're like there must be a conspiracy theory of like how the rich people stay rich and it's like well it's just money controls money and you it's it's not necessarily a conspiracy as much as it's just the reality of things and you know money puts people in power and all these other things and the commitments that you make as a political party towards getting more money um it's just bribery in a clean sense you know i i'm out in uh western north carolina now um i used to come here as a kid my grandmother lived here my mother lived here before she died and um i hear a lot of people out here say well we like to vote in the republican primary because you know the democrats are never going to win and so we just want to have a say and at least maybe not get the craziest possible person in office. Yeah. And all that's gotten us really is the craziest possible pro- uh, congressman. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who sits on the steps of the Capitol and smokes his cigars while he's doing Instagram lives. I mean, he is nuts and he does not represent anything about this district, but you know, that's what happens when you stop standing up for yourself. And I think the thing that I've tried to tell a lot of people out here is be open and honest about what you believe. Stand up for it. Fight for it. Convince people. Because I think all too often we get intimidated to a point where we feel like it's just easier to be quiet. Yeah. And the congressman used to say, you know, I think... He would, use, he would say, I think people are too quiet. You need to speak up. You need to make some noise. And I think he's right. I think even in this case, you know, sometimes, like, look who's making all the noise. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's it's there's something really fascinating about the work that AOC does and able to, like, speak plainly to the people and uh, kind of come out from nowhere um, yeah. just by connecting with her community. And... You know, it, it, it shocked and surprised a lot of people, but there's something where when you're able to speak in such a way that connects in an honest way and speaking a personal truth and, um, you know, it's it's quite fascinating, quite important to, to notice. Well, and I think what happens to the folks in Washington is that they, they start to think that the whole game, first of all, they start to think it is a game. Mm-hmm. And then they think that the whole game is about being able to maneuver in in that one town. And so then they start speaking Washingtonese. They develop a Washingtonese sense of morals, which is totally different than what the rest of the country uh, experiences as they live their lives. Um, and, and people get very disconnected. And I think, you know, uh, what Representative Ocasio-Cortez does that is um, incredibly admirable is that she focuses on constituent services. I mean, look yeah. at what happened out of the hurricane. She had her campaign out there checking on hundreds of thousands of people, making sure that they were getting the government services that they deserve. So whatever you may say about her votes in Washington, people 
particularly in Washington for too long, lose sight of the fact that what their real job is, aside from casting votes, is to make sure that their constituents get their services. Yeah. That is your single most important job. And I think if people spent more time figuring out and understanding how difficult it was, if they spent their time doing the nitty gritty, not just showing up to fundraisers and taking photos with famous people, but really getting out there and organizing, and then they would be a different type of representative and they would have a much better sense of what it really means to be a human being in, in this country or on this continent. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I say this as a former caseworker, right? And I think that yeah. really, that really impacted me. You know, I mean, I remember, I can remember helping a veteran come into the office and, and he said, look, I can't get the VA to cover this. And I said, why not? He said, well, because my medical records were blown up. I was like, where? He's like, in Iraq. You know? And he's like, so I don't have proof like that I was shot in Baghdad. And and I'm like, well, this is this is the medical documents here saying this is apparently around from an AK forty seven. And the VA was basically making the case, well, you know, you can get an AK forty seven somewhere in the United States. We don't know. And I'm like, Okay, fair uh, in a sad way, yeah. Um, but why are you making it so hard for this gunshot victim who clearly is a veteran who clearly sustained this wound while during military service because you have his enlistment paperwork at the very least, right? And like, just he's like beating his head against the wall, and I'm like calling the VA, and I'm this is the one thing my mother always was proud of me for. I could be a real persistent individual. <laughs> And, and I enjoy doing that on behalf of these folks because, you know, nothing makes me feel better than that moment when you did help somebody, yeah. when you used your power and your privilege or whatever it is you have to help somebody else. That is a higher high to me than just about anything else. Yeah. You know, and the congressman used to say, we've got all these people in Congress who love the world, but they don't love people. I, I I don't understand it because every piece of literature you read that you love, every art that you consume, that you look at, that you read from, hang on your wall, these are all from people. How can you separate that? And the only conclusion I can come to is that these people never knew love. They never knew what it was to be loved. And um, my mother was many things. But above all, she was someone who loved me. Mm -hmm. And um, it just makes me more and more grateful that I had her in my life. Because I think that's given me a greater sense of both the responsibility I have and the ability that I have to, to do something about it for other people. And does that kind of speak to the legacy that, that Congressman Lewis, you know, through his audience engagement for the past several years of his life, um, displayed that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, that's part of the reason we got along so well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, like our idea of getting in trouble was like, oh, yeah, we're going to go get arrested today. You know, like, it's like, yeah. stand up for these people. I remember when he was at the... So, so like I said, my father was a Turkish Muslim immigrant and, you know, being the child of a Muslim immigrant is not always the easiest thing. Um, and I remember when the Muslim ban came down, 
and I had just grown out my beard because uh, I felt like I'd tried to be. My mama had always wanted me to not look like my father because she thought that it would make me look um, too Middle Eastern, which is actually a term I hate. It should be West Asia, but that's different. It's a whole another conversation. Um, <laughs> And, and exactly, if you read Truth and Justice number six, the Batman comic I did with Damian Wayne, I get into this whole thing because, you know, now Damien's half Turkish, right? They let me let him do that. It's pretty cool. Um, but I get into this whole bit in there with the characters being like, yeah, that's a colonizer term. Yeah. Um, anyway, and I remember when the Muslim ban came down and the congressman was really sensitive to this because of how I felt about these things and how I felt like even in the Democratic Party, there was a real... Um, you know, essentially a racist attitude towards people from um, that part of the world. Yeah. And um, so when they they were, they detained someone at the airport, I believe it was, and the congressman just got in the car and he went down to the Atlanta airport and he demanded to know what was happening. And they said, well, sir, we're not going to be able to give you an answer uh, right now. Uh, we'll be in touch. And he said, oh, I'll wait. <laughs> And he sat there in the airport for I don't know how many hours until that person got sorted out. I yeah. remember being so proud of him because, like, who would do that? Especially for members of the Muslim community. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I was raised Methodist, but I, I know exactly how they feel in too many ways. Um, because just because of my last name or when I talk about my father, they put me in that camp. And, man... There's not too many people who like genuinely enjoyed those moments the way he did. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, that was a heck of a time. <laughs> Do you have interest? In, Cause I don't know, like contextually what you're, you're, you're writing comics now. Uh, you've got the good trouble productions. Are you working politically at all? Is that something you want to get back to? I mean, I am definitely politically involved. Um, <laughs> it was funny. My, you talked to Griffin. <laughs> he was teasing me just the other day. I had three different members of Congress on my call sheet for that day. Um, current and former. And, uh, you know, I'm just grateful that, that they like my advice and that they're willing to talk to me about my ideas. Um, but I don't think I'll ever be a staffer again. Yeah. Um, I don't care who you are. You're not John Lewis. <laughs> um, you know, I, I got to figure out what I want to do and how I do it. And I've got a lot of privilege and luxury. I'm, I'm also an artist in residence at Georgia State right now, which is, uh, is it's a wild story. My, my grandmother never went to college, but she worked there as a secretary. And then my mother did go to college at Georgia State. She went at night while she worked as a waitress. And so now I get to come back and I get to help students who are on the same path that my family was on and teach them how to make comics and tell stories. Um, you know, I've done <laughs> Congressman let me do a lot of small projects along the way. Uh, Cause he knew he kind of kept me happy and, and let me have my creative outlet when sometimes the government didn't. Um, so like one of them was that I co-wrote a VR project for time called the March, which is about the March on Washington. Um, and the VR writing experience is just fascinating. So it's just like a bunch of different mediums I'm going to try and help them work in. And it's also personally gratifying for me um, because Georgia State graduates more students of color than any other university in the country. 
So if you want to help people of color tell their story, you have to go there. Yeah. Um, and it's a state school. You know, this isn't a uh, it's not like Morehouse getting 100 million dollars from Netflix or whatever else. Um, this is a school where these people pay their tuition. They work. Um, they fight to be there. And if they're willing to do that, I want to show up to help them. Um, but, you know, after that, I'm working on another book. And honestly, man, my mother died four years ago. The congressman died a year ago. My grandmother died eight weeks before my mother died. And the dog died in February. So I feel like I have made enough of a contribution in the time I've had where it's okay for me to take a little time to step back. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I'm taking care of my mother's farm. So I got a tractor. Nice. And I love my tractor. It's manual too. None of that hydrostat stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love it. I really do. It's What grows on the farm? Well, right now we got Christmas trees and curly willows. We did a pumpkin patch, but it got eaten by the squash bugs. So now we're trying to to map out what we're going to do in the fall uh, to prepare for the spring. Um, I've got a recently acquired uh, kudzu patch that I'm also trying to clean out. And like, I know this isn't comics or politics or anything, <laughs> but did you know that you attack kudzu with uh, goats? This is I'm I'm like dying to get started on this. The way, like one of the most environmentally friendly ways you can get rid of kudzu is to bring in a number of goats and let them eat. Just eat all the kudzu. And it's so funny. Apparently, they only eat for the first few hours on the first day because they get so excited that they eat so much that they have to lay down and take a nap and rest. Oh, I love <laughs> it. <so> cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? What are these? These are amazing problems. You know, like it. it's just it's so much. It's so much healthier for me. And I think all of this goes back to a theme, which is that I had to do a lot of unhealthy living to get done what I got done and to get from where I started to where I am now. And what I'm really trying to do is recenter my life in a much more healthy way because I'd like to be around for a while. And the way I was living before, working that hard, being under that much stress, working with toxic people, it was not healthy. Yeah. And now I have some of the best creative partners in the world and I love it. And it's just a much more healthy lifestyle. And I think a lot of people, especially with the pandemic, are making these same adjustments to their lives. And I'm just fortunate that because of March and uh, I'm, I'm able to take that time and yeah. and be able to work sort of on projects rather than continue to need that government paycheck and i hope i can in some ways spark a conversation around this because the american workplace is also just incredibly unhealthy yeah Um, i think in in my little sphere of politics i worked with a lot of toxic people who were protected by other toxic people um and i think there's a generation ahead of mine maybe a little ahead of generation x that um, feels like financial gain is the only gain. Well, I mean, you're talking about the legacy of the 80s. Yeah. The Wall Street uh, I, I don't remember much of the 80s, fortunately. No, I'm 
<laughs> oh, the parts of the 80s I remember is my mom getting screwed over. And, um, you know, this is a... Um, this is a once in a generation event, and I think it's going to reshape the way um, w- the way a lot of people look at their lives and what they think is important. Yeah. Um, and I was just at the tail. I was at the the tip of it because um, losing my mother and losing the congressman uh, forced me to reassess that a little bit earlier than than a lot of other folks. But the more I talk to folks, they're they're doing the same sort of thing, like. Do I want to go back to an office? Maybe a little bit, but not every day. Certainly not commuting. I mean, these people who are commuting 45 minutes or an hour to go sit in a space where they don't even look at their colleagues, or worse, they're put in some sort of bullpen where they're forced to look at their colleagues all day, every day, that doesn't breed creativity. It breeds insanity. And I think if... I think I need to seize this opportunity and I'm trying to besides, man, you should see my mulch pile, man. It's so good. <laughs> I got this beautiful red Oak mulch and I'm like just putting it out and it, it's just like, I'm trying to get this curly willow back to health. And so I was pulling out all the um, vines and everything at the base. And it's just, I mean, there's something about that smell of good mulch. You know, something good is cooking. Yeah. The, the, the nuttiness. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, uh, I I may have lived rurally for a brief period of my early life. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, and that's the other thing that's strange to me. I think we've totally misunderstood the people who live in rural environments. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was really nervous. I needed to do something on a neighbor's land and I'd never talked to them. And, um, so I reached out to him and I was like trying to hide who I worked for and just be like very matter of fact and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, the lady looked at my name and she's like, wait, did you write March? My son loves that. And I was like, oh, my God. OK. And then she like hooked me up and like she's like, I'm so glad you're out here. And I ended up going and spending time with her son at the local library and talking to him about publishing and like, oh, that's funny. You know, it, it just it wasn't what I was expected, but it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where the loud people are a minority and they're drowning out the good people. And and it's why we have to make it known that we're here. Yeah. Um, I mean, even I don't know if you know much about Canadian political history or who Tommy Douglas was. Um, it's kind of the founder of our socialized medicine. But that mm-hmm. comes from a farmers cooperative movement. Oh yeah, that makes total sense. Rural healthcare in America is—they're not. Again, they're going on the urban model, right? Put it all into the giant hospitals, which makes sense for the profit structure for the large healthcare companies, but not for the care of individuals. And as a side note, uh, Keith Sutherland is his grandson. No kidding, really? Yeah, Keith Sutherland's grandfather started socialized <laughs> medicine in Canada. All right, well, he can get to be a movies, and that's fair. <laughs> Like, you know, pay it forward, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and so Donald Sutherland's his son or is it through his mom? His mom. Yeah. His mom. Oh, okay. Yeah. But Donald Sutherland's Canadian. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's like he, he knew he was marrying and stuff. He, uh, you know, it's Tommy Douglas's daughter. Yeah. Is he? And I, I feel like in Canada, that's like, uh, that that's like uh, dating royalty in some sense, right? Like, that's why she, she married the big movie star. Yeah. 
Like, yeah, yeah. And, and that's when I go back to the cultural values, like where we value the people who contributed as opposed to people who worked out some weirdo financial scheme to get rich. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and, you know, it's even for myself, I've been working in person nonstop in social services for the past long while all through the pandemic, sourcing, you know, gloves and hand sanitizers and april of last year and i'm very looking forward to being over and i don't know if i'm gonna be doing the same thing when this is done you know it's uh yeah it's, it's, i'm burnout man i mean burnout is real yeah and it's not like one of those things that you can just fix by going on a vacation yeah. right like you lose i felt like that's really what i went through on the hill it was just complete burnout i mean i think some people I got let down in some ways where you, you believe that the system would work in, in at least this very basic way of decency. And then it just totally didn't. Um, and it's funny. I mean, you see, like, now it's like you see. Oh, I shouldn't talk about this. No, nope, no, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Look, there's there's the postscript. Someday I will write a book of all my crazy adventures and the ups and the downs and the people who did me wrong and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I, I just hope that when I do it, I have the ability to be as generous as possible to as many people as possible, because it's hard not to in these days look at it as like there are people on the in the tops of both parties who are more intent on keeping power and keeping influence yeah. and making money than they are about helping anybody, no matter what they say. No matter what the rhetoric is. And sometimes you on the Hill, you got to meet the good ones. And I know them deeply, personally, and I care for them. And then in a lot of other cases, these people who go around and they swath themselves in this cloak of righteousness are some of the most evil and corrupt and insidious individuals you'll ever work with. And it's not a, that is the one thing that's not a partisan issue. You know, yeah. it's like, um, well, I mean, it's what I was saying earlier is, is, is money begets power that, that sustains power and, you know, actions speak, um, versus it's words. It's also a willingness to be corrupted. Yeah. You know, it's like you saying, well, I like that person, so I'm going to cover up even though they, they're useful to me and I have morals, but that person I'm helping who is useful to me, they maybe have done something immoral, but I can look the other way. Because I need this. I mean, it, it takes true courage. Courage is like rarely around to take a stand that you know you will lose or that you know will cost you money or business or prestige or promotion. Um, and it's yeah. almost become institutionalized that the short term solution, the self beneficial solution, is the only solution. Yep. Um, and I think the morality of life is going to come into question after the pandemic and there will be a great reckoning. Um, um, but you know, I mean, I think back picture, to that. Yeah. Back to the comics. Um, well, first of all, so one of my most favorite things I got to do this year was to write the three part story that was reprinted in truth and justice. Number six illustrated by Juni Ba. who's a fantastic artist. Um, that made canon that um, Damian Wayne, Batman's son, is half Turkish. Mm -hmm. um, because I've never had a Turkish anything to look up to in the United States. Yeah. Um, and I have these photos of my first, uh, I think it was my ninth or eighth or ninth birthday. My mom made me a Batman cake. 
and I was wearing my Batman t-shirt. It was like a whole Batman birthday, right? So I did the story as it was it was Damian Wayne's birthday, and they had a Batman cake for him. And I mean, it was really it was just fantastic. I'm like so grateful for it because it let me deal with so many of my own personal family father issues in a way that really was cathartic. And I think also helpful that some kid down the line will pick up this comic and see a character as Damien lives on a character who looks like him. I mean, the, the number of mixed race children in this country is growing exponentially and um, being able to see someone who lives in that. Uh, I think in the issue, I say he lives in the gutter. He lives between panels, not part yeah. of one or the other. Um that's kind of what's beautiful, I think, about storytelling and, and honestly, the opportunities that DC's given me, which is crazy, right? Because, you know, you never think of the big two doing this, and yet they are. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with Marie Javins and the tone she's set. But also, I think, you know, um, there's some good people over there. And um, although I should also say Marvel let me put Captain America in the Mississippi Freedom Summer, and then he failed. And he had to ask the question. I was trained to fight America's enemies, but how do I fight America? So even they've really let me explore some some subjects through these superheroes that I think would never be able to be explored in any other way. I mean, we see so much of ourselves in these superheroes, but also that gives us this universality that um, finds a deeper vein for us in many ways, right? Because it taps into that little kid we once were, started reading comics, and then the adult and all these different emotional contexts for ourselves. Um, and so anyway, I mean, I, I, I know every literary scholar and everybody else who's going to read my work and they're going to talk about March and Run. But there's something to be said for the superheroes mm-hmm. um, and what that lets us explore. Um, don't get me wrong. They're not always perfect. But for me and my own writing... I'm really lucky that they've given me these these opportunities. You know, I mean, yeah. if you told little that little nine year old Batman fan, with, I mean, I wore Batman socks hiked up to my knees on my first day at kindergarten. <laughs> if you had told that kid he would later go on to write comics with Batman in them, that kid would have lost his mind. You know? Yeah. And, but I mean, it's you know, it's the it's connected to the audience, and the audience is diverse. You know, like I have a lot of queer friends you know 15 years ago that loved male superhero comics i'm like you know what that's actually kind of an obvious market there that could be yeah, did better <laughs> you know like a whole series of comics of muscle-bound dudes <laughs> um and it, it, people want to read stories that reflect themselves you know they right. want to see themselves in what they're reading yeah i mean dick grayson's a queer icon um there's even like there's I've talked to some other writers who've done this and you're always putting in like little jokes that are like nods to that so that your readers like okay we can't say it but like we're gonna say it quietly you know yeah um, and um, yeah you know I, that's, that's the thing I go back to where it's like all hope is not lost um, the world can find a way to correct itself you got to be hopeful. You got to be optimistic, um, and you got to keep pushing. You got to keep pulling, as a congressman would say. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Make your intentions known. Right. Yeah, it challenged somebody to go back and read that that article from the future of nonviolence issue because it's nuts. We were like, we want to change, we want to ignite a new nonviolent revolution. I think is in effect what we said. And then you see, in the spring before John Lewis dies, he goes to Black Lives Matter Plaza and sees it written out down the road, just like the cover of March Book Three, with all these students that he inspired through his talks and his graphic novels and his tweets. And you're like, holy cow, that plan worked. Yeah. And I, I, I guess the thing I go back to is that like you, you too can have that plan. You know, the, the next John Lewis isn't like if you just take it at face value, John Lewis wasn't John Lewis 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. So who else is out there who could be that moral force and that leader for us? We just haven't found a way to bring their story to the national consciousness. And I guess that's a bit of what you're looking at with good trouble. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, no, man, this was a pleasure. It's been a blast. Uh, very much enjoyed chatting. Uh, reminder, folks, uh, Andrew's new book, along with, as we mentioned, Congressman Lewis, Al Fury, and our good friend Nate Powell, run from Abrams Books. I believe it's out in fine book and comic stores now, and uh, possibly signed in remote locations that Andrew may have passed through. <laughs> yeah, or if you want me to sign it, you can just buy it through my website and I'll send it to you. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate this.